Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. If this is your first time, we're really glad you're here. Thanks for coming to be with us and to visit today. One of my worst nightmares is that my wife, Erin, disappears or dies. And it's not a frequent nightmare that I have, but it is a regular nightmare that I will have while I'm sleeping. It's one thing to suffer injury or pain yourself, but it's something altogether different to lose someone or something that you love deeply. That's why I think in movies when terrorists need to coerce someone to exert authority, you know, to like turn a key to launch the nuke or something, they make little progress when they threaten to harm the hostage himself. But if they bring out an innocent person, especially this hostage's spouse or child, then the, uh, the hostage will usually cave in. So as we come to chapter 13 in our sermon series, through straight through the, the book of Mark, if you have a church Bible, it's on page 551. As we come to chapter 13, we need to understand how Jesus threatens that which was most beloved to the people he was addressing. It was their temple, the precious temple in Jerusalem. And please don't get my analogy wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus is a terrorist. Jesus never coerces people to do the wrong thing. But he knows that he must establish God's kingdom. And that kingdom will have competitors. And some of those competitors are not bad things but good things that people love too much and they trust in too much. And so all such competitors must go. For Jesus to save the world, he must remove the distraction and annihilate all competing kingdoms. These are the things that simply must be done to establish Jesus' kingdom. So if you're here, be on guard lest you be shocked and disturbed when Jesus comes to you and takes away what you hold most dear, especially when that thing is no longer good for you. When Jesus does that, he does it with wisdom and love so that you'll have nothing left but him, and you'll see how beautiful he is and how good And powerful and generous he is, like a father removing a rock out of a baby's mouth so it doesn't choke. So what must be done to establish Jesus' kingdom? On your outlines, you can see every stone must be thrown down, and every apostle must be informed, and every believer must stay awake. Let me pray for our time in this passage. Our Father, we pray that you would bring your spirit in force to our hearts as we read and study your word. Help us to be changed, that we might worship you through Jesus alone, even if you have to take away the things we hold most dear. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Through chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has been debating with the Jewish leaders about who has authority to teach the people about God. And those debates ended at the end of chapter 12 
with an indictment of the scribes who love fame and honor. In verses 38 to 40, Jesus exposed how they devour widows' houses in order to get their own fame and honor. And then in verses 41 through 44, he produced Exhibit A, a poor widow who had nothing to live on but two pennies. And so she took all that she had and put it in the offering box. Here we are in the temple at Jerusalem among the people of God in the place where women and men are supposed to come to meet God, to find forgiveness and peace, to be reconciled to God and to each other. And Jesus, God in the flesh, arrives to inspect the temple operations. And what he finds is that the scriptures are not being taught. Prayers are not being made. Leaders are not doing what is right. God himself is not even recognized, and the people are not being served. Instead, they are being misled and taken advantage of. This must not continue. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 13. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Here, and for the rest of this chapter, Jesus takes on the role of, of a prophet, one who guarantees God's inevitable fury and his just retribution against all who stand in the way of God's agenda to bless all nations. And so one of Jesus' students marvels at the wonderful complex of buildings for the temple. He's like a freshman who just arrived in town and who thinks, Penn State, everything I've heard about and I've seen it on TV, but it's even better. This stadium is so big. How do they pack more than 100,000 people in there? This campus is so broad. How will I ever make it from one class to the next in time? The scholarship is so erudite. How could I possibly make my mark? And this machine is so powerful. How can anything stand against mighty Penn State. Now, some of you have been at Penn State long enough to be able to tell that freshman, just you wait until you get used to it. It's not as big and as powerful as it at first appears. It's not as scary as you think, and it becomes more accessible over time. And in fact, just you wait until you see the dark side, the tyranny and the bureaucracy are not impregnable. You know, right, we have seen our share of abuse and injustice and the taking down of seemingly untouchable powers and personalities. So also Jesus responds to his freshman companions. You see this? You see it? Every stone will be thrown down. And by this, he means not just the physical structure, but also 
everything it represents. The system, the community, the administration, and the corruption. Now we need to remember at this point that this is God's temple. This whole thing was his idea. But its usefulness has run out. Its purpose has deteriorated. So it must go. And that fact naturally raises some questions for the disciples. But before we get to those questions, please consider some application. Right here up front, we need to realize that, that, that so, some of you still need to turn away from the evil things that you trust in. Whether it be sexual immorality, or pride, or abuse of authority, or greed. But honestly, I think most of you here including myself, we need to let go not of the evil things, but of the good things that we trust in. Just as the temple was a good thing, it was God's own idea, but then it lost its usefulness when people loved it more than God or they loved their system more than they loved their people, so also you and I must be on our guard for good and noble things that compete with Christ and his kingdom. If we use Christ to gain more of these things, and we don't use these things to gain more of Christ, then Jesus will have to tear them down stone by stone. And this is for our good. For example, I told you one of my greatest fears is losing my wife or losing my children. These are some of my worst nightmares. This Family is one of God's loveliest gifts to me. But I remind myself, this family is not my highest life. It cannot be my highest life. This is a fallen world, and I just may lose my family someday. And that will be very, very difficult for me. And I will need all of you to help me remember that God is not necessarily punishing me or stealing from me. He's not out to get me, but he's still just as good and in control as ever. In fact, he is my greatest good, my highest life. What is it for you? Some of you will dedicate your children to the Lord after this sermon. Are those children something that would be hard for you to lose? What is it? What is the thing that would be most devastating for you to lose? And how can you make sure that thing never takes God's place in your life? As we just sang, Lord, thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Every stone must be thrown down. We see second. Every apostle must be informed. We now move into a time of question and answer between Jesus and his disciples. It starts in verses 3 and 4. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Let's talk about these two questions, because following this passage just might be the most difficult chapter in all of Mark. And I want to be honest with you, I, I don't think I have the final 
definitive answers on how to read this chapter, but I'm going to do my best. But please feel free to consider other options and allow them to drive you back to the text. Our goal is always to understand what the passage says. The text leads me to conclude two things. Right here in verses 3 and 4, the disciples ask Jesus two very specific questions. That's my first conclusion. And my second is that Jesus actually responds to their questions. Now, some interpreters come to this chapter and they read this chapter as though Jesus almost completely ignores the disciples' questions. Or as though he skims across these questions and jumps to the end of the world. And I do think that by the end of the chapter, we'll see that Jesus has something bigger in mind than just the situation that these disciples will face. But I think he begins with and he spends most of his time on that situation, that which he just predicted, every stone being thrown down from this temple. And it's not too difficult to read this chapter in that light, especially with Jesus's climactic declaration in verse 30 where he says truly i say to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place so i think everything between verses 3 and verse 30 will all take place within that generation of the people he is speaking with let me walk you through this they ask two questions in verse 4 the first question is when will these things be So they want to know, when will this temple be destroyed? When will these stones be thrown down? And their second question is, you see it in verse 4, what what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? In other words, what should we watch out for so that we know it's going to happen? So when will it be and what should we watch for? You see, they are rightly upset about Jesus' prediction They were just marveling at these wonderful buildings and at this marvelous work that God has done for generations in the temple. And Jesus told them, it will be smashed to bits. And this will shake up everything they hold dear. Because if the temple goes, that will forever change everything about the way we worship God, about the way we approach God, about the way we do community as God's people. So how can we prepare for such a cataclysm? So in verses 5 through 13, I think Jesus answers the first question, when? And in verses 14 through 27, I think he answers the second question, the signs to watch for. So let's start with letter B, when when these things will be, verses 5 through 13. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand 
what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So how does he answer the when question? He does it in two parts. Verses 5 through 8, he says, not at this, but then in 9 through 13, but at this. So not at this, but at this. And so not, don't be misled, 5 through 8, by imposters claiming to be Christ. Don't be misled by wars, by the end of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And don't be upset when, uh, by disasters, natural disasters. But, he says in 9 through 13, it will come after you are imprisoned, you are killed, and the gospel goes out. In other words, those who love their temple, they will feel very threatened by your message of forgiveness, which is for all people, not just for Jews. Now, of course, there are things that have happened here through all of history. Wars and imposters and natural disasters and persecution of missionaries and Christians. And as we consider some application, we need to understand that people have always freaked out at imposters and wars and disasters and such things. You know, they wear their sandwich board signs on the streets of the city and they decry the end of all things. But friends, these things should never cause Jesus' followers to fear. Verse 8, such things are not the end, but they are merely the beginning of birth pains. Something new and beautiful will always be born out of them. So that's where he goes as far as the when question at this point. But then in 14 to 27, letter C, he moves on to answer the second question. Here's what to watch for. And Jesus will give three signs for them to look for. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
here in this section, Jesus gives them three signs to look for to know when these things are about to be accomplished. Sign number one is the abomination of desolation. Verses 14 through 23. Now I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't know exactly what he's talking about. And I read lots and lots and lots of commentaries to prepare for this. And I think the consensus is that nobody has any idea what exactly he's talking about. But I can tell you a few things that we can know from this passage. He is talking about an event. Main thing to know is that though we don't know what exactly he's talking about, Mark expects his original audience to know exactly what he's talking about. In verse 14, Mark throws in this parenthetical statement. It's probably not the actual words of Jesus. It's Mark's narrative statement. Let the reader understand. He's trying to get the reader's attention as he wrote this to his audience. He's like, you need to know this. You'll see this. You'll know it when it comes. And if you happen to be in Judea or Jerusalem at the time, get out. So we know they would have known what he was talking about. One other thing we can know is that Jesus is referring to a phrase used by Daniel in his prophecy in the Old Testament. Daniel uses this phrase, the abomination of desolation, in chapters 9, 11, and 12. And the, the phrase has to do with a sacrilegious activity. In other words, some ritual or activity that utterly defiles the holy place. And if we look, we look at the parallel passage in Luke 21, verses 20 to 21, Luke suggests it partly has to do with the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem. Luke, Mark says, when you see the abomination of desolation, let those who are in Judea flee the mountains. Luke 21:20 says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, let him who is in Judea flee to the mountains. So it has partly to do with the armies that are going to come surround the city. Others suggest with good reason that it has to do with the utter compromise of Judaism in those final days before the temple was destroyed. One commentator summarized it this way, William Lane. He said, during this period, about 68 A.D., the Zealots, who were the political party violently opposed to Roman rule, they moved into and occupied the temple area. They allowed persons who had committed crimes to roam about freely in the Holy of Holies, the secret room that no one was allowed to go into. They perpetrated murder within the temple itself. These acts of sacrilege were climaxed in the winter of 67 to 68 by the farcical investiture of the clown Fani as high priest. So they took a guy, some clown, and made him high priest. It was in response to this specific action that the retired high priest, Ananus, with tears, lamented, It would have been far better for me to have died before I had seen the house of God laden with such abominations and its unapproachable and hallowed places crowded with the feet of murderers. So we do know that the temple was desecrated utterly right before Rome came and destroyed it. Perhaps there's something in there that Jesus is talking about, but I'll leave it there and move on at this point. If they would have known, when you see this, get out, get away. It's about to happen. In verses 24 and 25, we see the second sign that Jesus tells them to watch out for, which is the shaking of kingdoms. 
the shaking of kingdoms. And as we read these verses where he says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven. If we read this and, and we jump to what we would immediately think he's talking about today, we might think he's talking about the end of the world. But if we read it with the eyes of a first century Jewish disciple and how they would have heard it, we would, we would realize that God's prophets have been using this exact language for centuries to describe the fall of earthly kingdoms. Not necessarily the destruction of the cosmos. Isaiah chapter 13 speaks of the fall of the Babylonian Empire this way. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I, God, will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So they use this prophetic, poetic language to describe the shaking of kingdoms. Ezekiel 32 uses the same language to describe the fall of Egypt. Amos, Zephaniah, and others use it to describe the exile and judgment of the nation of Israel. And so Jesus now uses these poetic, prophetic images to describe the fall of Jerusalem. The point is that God will shake the nations. The nation that he chose for himself will fall like stars from heaven. The sun and moon will become dark. We'll see soon that actually that literally happens at the cross. But he's talking about, in verse 25, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when the disciples see the shaking of kingdoms, especially Israel is about to fall, they can know the destruction is imminent. So that's the second sign, the shaking of kingdoms. The third sign is in verses 26 and 27. This is the coronation of the sun. The coronation of the sun. Here is the climax of what Jesus is saying. Everything is built to this final sign of the temple's destruction. And it has to do with the identity and the kingship of Jesus. And here's where we see what this really has to teach us today. He says, They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And again, it, it's possible to read this phrase and think of the very end, the day when Jesus will come back from heaven to earth to do away with all evil and suffering and make righteousness dwell forever. However, I want to point out that Jesus makes this same statement in the very next chapter of Mark when he's on trial in front of the high priest and the chief priests and the rulers. In Mark 14, 62, he says, I am, they ask him, are you the Christ? And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So, you see, Jesus asserts that the current high priest will see him ride these clouds and take his seat. At God's right hand. What are we to make of this? I really think that Jesus is taking his cues here from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel prophesied, he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And Jesus taps right into the language of Daniel's vision. You, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And consider the perspective of this vision from Daniel. He's, Daniel's not writing with the perspective of someone on earth watching the Son of Man come down from heaven. Daniel is writing with the perspective of someone in heaven watching the Son of Man come up from earth to receive his glorious kingdom from God the Father. And that's exactly what happened after Jesus died and was raised. He went up to heaven on the clouds and he took his seat to reign over all his competitors. And in Mark 16, verses 19 and 20, they connect, it connects Jesus' ascension to heaven with the preaching of the gospel going out to all nations. And then you get to the book of Acts in chapter 7. An early Christian leader named Stephen is on trial before the Jewish leaders. And Stephen sees a vision of Jesus at the right hand of God. And that infuriates the Jew, the Jewish council and provokes them to execute Stephen. They could not believe that the Son of Man had ridden those clouds yet to take his kingdom. So yes, they saw Jesus ride those clouds up so he could take his throne. And they saw Jesus send out his angels his messengers to start preaching the gospel and gathering the elect from the four winds. And this coronation of Jesus to receive his kingdom, it marked the end of the Jewish system, the end of the Jewish way of doing things, the end of Jewish ways of relating to God. And all that was left after that was for the temple to be taken down so there would be no viable competition left for this king's message. So you see, the major events of Scripture fit together. I wanted to highlight some of this so that you could see that we should care not only about Jesus' death and resurrection, which are crucial events, but we also really need to care about his ascension into heaven and his seating at God's right hand to rule over all his enemies. And these things are written so that we might find unshakable confidence in the power and authority given to Jesus to rule all things. And so as Hebrews 12 puts it, yet once more God will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, Jesus summarizes all of his answer to these two questions in verses 28 through 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is here at the very gates. So he summarizes, when you see these signs, you know that he is here and he will throw every stone down. And then 30 and 31, when is it going to happen? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
In other words, it's possible for heaven and earth to pass away, but it is not possible for my words to pass away. Even my words about when this will take place and what the signs are for it to come. How does this apply for us? All of this, how do we put this together? First, be grateful. Be grateful that a great tribulation is behind us. Not the only tribulation. We will have many tribulations in our lives. Christians will always be persecuted. There will be hard times. But there is a great tribulation behind us. And this matters because the temple has been destroyed. And because of that, the way is open for people of all nations, not just Jews, to join the church. Without this event, we would have mass confusion in the church. Most of the New Testament is grappling with this transition from the Jewish way of doing things to the Christian way of doing things, the New Covenant. Many of us might not even be here, and the the message of Christ might not have gone very far. We'd be terribly confused about who are Jesus' people, and we'd be stuck in Passovers and circumcision and purification rituals and whole burnt offerings. And you see, Jesus said, all that's going to go away to make way for the message, the good news of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Be grateful. Second, be confident. Be confident in the work that Jesus has done because it cannot be shaken. If you trust in Jesus, you have absolutely nothing to fear about the future. Nothing to fear. Be grateful. Be confident. And third, be alert. Be alert because, friends, history is not yet over. There is more to come. Jesus' plans are not yet complete. In a moment, we'll have some families come up to dedicate their children to the Lord. And you must stay awake and you must teach these little ones to stay awake. Look at how Jesus shifts in the final paragraph, verses 32 through 37. He shifts from his certainty of the timing and the events to an unbelievable uncertainty. And I think this shift marks a change in topic. It marks a foreshadowing. The verses 32 to 37. But concerning that day, so all these things will take place in this generation, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, you four disciples who asked me about these things at the beginning, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You see, Jesus knows that all these things, the destruction of this temple, the casting down of every stone, will take place within that generation. But he does not even know when that day or that hour will be. The day and hour when the journeying master will return home. 
when he checks on his servants and evaluates their work, when he comes suddenly and finds some to be asleep. You see, Jesus went to heaven riding on those clouds and he, he claimed his kingdom, but I want you to know, he won't stay there forever. He will return to earth someday and he will demand an accounting. In verse 37, he says in no uncertain terms that he is no longer speaking to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He is speaking to all of us. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. How does this apply? First, don't wait. Don't wait for a better day to follow Jesus. If you don't know Jesus here today and you have not given your life to him and you're not following him, don't wait for a better day. You may not get one. Trust him today. You don't have the luxury of signs to know when he will return. Nobody knows. You won't be able to read the tea leaves and change course. This sermon today might be as much of a sign as you get. Jesus died and he rose to forgive you of your wrongdoing against God and he went up into heaven and he sat down so he might draw you into his kingdom. You can become right with God if you trust in Jesus' work for you. Don't wait. And finally, don't put off anything that you want to do for Jesus. Don't put off anything that you want to do for Jesus. Do it now. Don't be caught sleeping when he's asked you to watch and pray with him. If you follow Jesus, he has put you in charge of part of his work. He has stationed you at the door. The rooster will soon crow and morning will come. Will he be pleased with how you've served him? So friends, what must be done to establish Jesus' kingdom? Every stone that stands against him must be thrown down. Every apostle must be informed so they can make this transition and help usher in the new covenant. And every believer must stay awake. We do not know when the master will come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for granting us this message through Jesus. Please help us to hear it with eyes of faith. Help us to see Jesus, the, the, the executed and risen Son of Man who ascended into heaven and has taken his seat, who is now at your right hand ruling all things until all his enemies will be put under his feet. Lord, please help us to, to know him, not to wait another day to follow him, and help us to be good stewards of the work that you have entrusted to us. Please help us to stay awake, help us to be alert, and help us to communicate these things to our children and to everyone around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.